0: Hello, and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies, and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Jeremy Shapiro. I'm the research director at ECFR, and I have once again t- this week taken advantage of a complacent uh, Mark Leonard to seize the reins of the podcast, and this week we're going to talk about the European Sovereignty Index, a brand new ECFR web tool that assesses the overall EU performance on a bunch of different issues and to what extent each EU member state is fulfilling its potential and contributing to European sovereignty in each of six key policy areas, climate, defense, economy, health, migration, and technology. Um, Joining me in my coup efforts this week are um, Susie Dennison, Senior Policy Fellow and head of ECFR's European Power Program as well as Pavel Zerka, uh, ECFR policy fellow, and they are both co-authors of the index. Um, I should note that the index is in fact the work of many thousands of uh, ECFR people uh, toiling in in the depths of the ECFR factories to put forward this web tool, but I think Pavel and Susie can represent them all very well. From my perspective as the research director, which is a sort of Latin word meaning supervises and does little, the Sovereignty Index represents a sort of culmination of three or four years worth of work that we've been doing on the concept of European sovereignty, on trying to understand what Europe needs to do to act independently in the world. And as we were doing this work over the last three or four years, uh, a lot of people asked us, you know how do you measure this? How do you know how well uh, the EU is doing on sovereignty, and how do you know which of the member states that are pulling their weight and which aren't? So we went to the back to the drawing board and tried to develop a, a methodology and a process for that, uh, and that and the result is the sovereignty index, which was just published yesterday. It's super fun if you guys like video games and that kind of stuff. I think you should you should definitely. Go to the ECFR website and play around with it. But right now, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, how it works and what we have found in the first round of results. So, Pavel, I'd like to start with you, and can you just give me a sense of what this thing is uh, and how it works and what it measures?
1: Thanks, Jeremy. Uh, so. With with the European Sovereignty Index, we want to start the conversation rather than end the conversation. We wanted to feels like we never provide... end conversations, yeah. <laughs> and feels like we are always starting them afresh. Yeah. But um, yeah, we. I, I feel that over the past uh, couple of years, uh, it has been clear that there is a need for European sovereignty, and therefore, with this tool, because most of all, this is a web tool that you can browse and play with. Uh, We were trying to provide evidence to that debate, but also a a practical framing. So in order to measure European sovereignty in those different fields, uh, we also had to define how we understand that uh, uh, sovereignty. And we didn't want to define it in a close-minded way as as, uh, Europe uh, retreating from globalization. So we focused a lot on the concept of of, uh, complex interdependencies. And uh, therefore our approach was to look what would it take for Europe to be able to defend, uh, to act according to its principles and values in that world of of complex interdependencies without us being bullied by uh, others. An important thing to note is that we looked specifically at the contribution of each EU member state to European sovereignty and whether countries are fulfilling their potential. Theref, therefore, we uh, often yeah, had, to, had to weight this by population. And uh, the EU results that we came up with uh, is coming from the joint analysis of, of the contribution of each member state.
0: Okay. Uh, that's helpful. Uh, I think it, it does. It does occur to me that in order to really understand this thing, you sort of have to go and look at it. So I would encourage people to do that. But what we've done in the first, in the sort of first round of this, I think is in the beginning of the conversation, as Pavel says, is essentially grade people and grade the, the, the EU as a whole in each of the terrains and grade each of the member states on their contribution to European sovereignty in each of the terrains. So Susie, what did we find? Who, who, are the, who are the big contributors to European sovereignty and who are the laggards?
2: So there are basically <clears throat> three levels of the story um, within the Sovereignty Index. The first level is about uh, European performance as a whole on the six different terrains. And then what we found there is that uh, European sovereignty is good um, on health and the economy. Uh, It is satisfactory on defence, climate, and migration, and it's poor on technology. I, I just want to sort of pause here and say that that might sound okay. Uh, overall, uh, as a picture, but I think the, the the collective assessment of the authors in working on this is that good isn't actually good enough in the uh, um, the tense geopolitical environment that we're living in, and we, in order to to come up with these rankings, uh, we we judged on a scale of uh, one to ten. And so there was an opportunity to be excellent, and there there was no um, there was no category where on any area I don't think Pavel, but correct me if I'm wrong, where we we gave above six overall for the European performance. Then I think the the second uh, major finding is that overall, and this is kind of sticking with the European level of the story, overall we're stronger. On um, commitments than capabilities. I mean, maybe this is a kind of somewhat obvious point because we've been talking about the need to be more sovereign on these different terrains for years. Um, so in in some senses, um that's where the, the commitment comes from. Uh but I think it's in, it's important and it's kind of comes back to this um this this overall point that that we're not good enough um, uh, on on sovereignty as a whole. Uh, that um, that that we haven't yet got the capabilities that we need to compete uh, on um, uh, the majority of terrains. And then the third, um, I think, uh, key finding. Is about the role of um, the different member states. We've uh, we've we've grouped the member states in terms of their um, contribution to each terrain, um, but then we've also assessed overall how that picture looks um, in terms of their overall co- contribution to EU sovereignty. And um, we've noted that um, the leaders are not actually just the big member states. So among the overall leaders, we have France and Germany, but we also have Netherlands, Sweden, and Denmark. And then um, uh, a number of the other larger member states, um, for example, Spain and Italy, we've um, classed as one hit wonders. They contribute in one area, um, but they're not contributing across the board to the extent which they could be. And then Poland, um, we've actually got as an underperformer in terms of contribution to overall sovereignty. So um, I think that this picture in terms of the role that member states have been playing, and um, it's important to note that we haven't just judged contribution at- according to the size, of, the size of the member state in economic terms or population terms, we have weighted these. It's, it's not necessarily the case that big means the biggest contribution to sovereignty.
0: Can, can you tell us just a little bit more about why states end up being leaders or one hit wonders or uh, laggards? What, what is it that, what is it about their contribution? What is it that lacks in their contribution? Maybe you can just take one example, uh, uh, like Poland. Why is it, why is it underperforming?
2: Because um, essentially, we, we didn't um, judge its contribution uh, to be uh, good or strong on any one of the given uh, six terrains. It's, it's overall a, a sort of a half-hearted contribution, if you want, in terms of what it could be. Uh, Adding to the to the European whole, the difference between um, underperformers and and one hit wonders might be sort of somewhat obvious. Uh, Here, we we feel that there is um, a contribution to a specific area that is worthy of note, um, which is why um, we've created that category. I think it's also important to note that there is a category between one hit wonders and leaders, if you like, which we've called the Strivers. So this is where. uh there is an, an overall reasonable performance, but no kind of standout um, fields uh, in terms of the member states. So I think what you can take from the strivers is that they're committed to the idea of sovereignty, but they're not making um, they're not going the extra mile on any particular area.
0: Yeah, boy, that sounds familiar. Uh, the, can I ask you just I mean, this is for both of you, really, either of you. Uh, do, you, do, you, do either of you sense that the, what we're measuring here is their commitment to um, sovereignty? So Poland, for example, is, is um, underperforming because it doesn't think sovereignty is important and it's not interested in it? Or do you think that we're capturing an, in, an incapacity, an inability uh, or a failure uh, to do these things from countries that actually believe in it. Can you can you figure that out from the data? I,
1: I can try to respond on that. So with this tool, we were trying to account for both. And actually, we for each of the fields, uh, when we developed indicators to measure European sovereignty, we listed those indicators separately for capabilities and for commitments so that we can see whether countries... Are actually more committed to, to to European sovereignty on economy or on health than they are actually able to contribute to it. And uh, as Susie already mentioned in the in the summarizing results, overall uh, Europeans seem to be doing really good on their commitments. So actually, in every uh, field except from except for migration, uh, they are doing good in their commitment. When it comes to the EU results, and it's therefore the capabilities that that that, that are uh, missing. I'm not sure how to interpret it. Perhaps it's different from area to area. You can you can conclude that uh, Europeans simply lack the resources, but they have the ambition to to be to have a sovereign Europe. But you can also interpret it as as Europeans simply not putting their money where their mouth is, and therefore. Maybe there is a lot of talk about European sovereignty already, but not so much or not enough uh, action. And uh, when it comes to specific countries, th- there are uh, several examples, such as Poland, where where a country is doing much better on uh, its commitments to uh, European sovereignty than on, it, uh, on its capabilities. And one final note on this. When, when I say commitment, we were trying to uh, look at not just... Uh, uh, whether governments are committed to the idea of European sovereignty in these different fields, but also at the public opinion and whether, whether the general public uh, is, is supportive of, of those different initiatives
2: just wanted to kind of um, add two cents that I think for for geeks like us, what is quite interesting is the profile um, of each of the different terrains in terms of the role of the member states. So there are some where you've got um, quite a large spread in terms of the performance, I'd say that climate um, and energy is one of those, where you've got a few member states who are really pulling the EU as a whole um, ahead, and quite a lot who are dragging it down. Um, uh, Then you've got other areas like migration, uh, where actually you've just got an overall pretty mediocre performance. Um, There's nobody that's really kind of um, uh, out in the front. There's nobody that's really um, uh, pulling um, the situation back. It's just that there is this sort of general lack of commitment to to the idea of building sovereignty at a European level. You can see quite clearly that this remains um, a sort of national prerogative. And then I think you you have um, other areas again, and i i would probably say health is one of these um where you have a general desire to work on this collectively so um uh, there you have yeah the uh, the a uh, quite a strong eu performance as a whole with um with some um particularly um more committed performances from member states but i uh, i i think um that that's what's been quite interesting at these work, that the terrains aren't just because um the argument on the need for european sovereignty as a whole is basically been one um that doesn't mean um that all of the necessary terrains look the same in terms of the way that member states are engaging with implementing it
0: so we see basically a varied performance and we see that europeans are better at promising than at delivering um which is definitely consistent with my experience uh
1: so (laughs) Or maybe that they are, they have this ambition to be more sovereign, but simply it requires time to for them to develop the necessary resources. Oh yeah,
0: that puts it more nicely. Yeah, thank you. Um, <laughs> I gotta, I gotta learn. Pavel, you should host this podcast next week. Um, <laughs> you have the diplomatic <laughs> skills. Uh, so, I guess maybe you know, the, in in part, this is a sort of effort to understand what the distribution of. Uh, capabilities and intentions are across the eu and you know we like to talk in the eu about these various sort of camps and systematic divides do you guys see any sort of systematic divides uh, across categories of member states large versus small east versus west that kind of thing
1: i think i I should take this question as a representative of the east uh, on this podcast uh (laughs) And, uh, well, Susie's a
0: representative of the UK, so she can definitely take it too. <laughs> but uh, but go ahead, Pavel.
2: I'm also French. That I'm going to talk about security. <laughs>
1: yeah, I'm. I I must say I I've been disappointed, deeply disappointed by the by the fact that the results largely confirmed the east-west divide, which. Uh, which uh, I often feel is a stereotype. And unfortunately...
0: Yeah, the most frustrating thing about European stereotypes is they all turn out to be true.
1: Kind of, yeah. With some excep- exceptions on this uh, thing, but when you look at the underperformers uh, in in the group of underperformers uh, in, in our tool, most of them, actually not, uh, yeah. Most of them, apart from Greece, are... F- coming from the uh, from among the, let's call it, new member states, which means those that have entered the EU after 2004. Um, and at the same time, when you look at the two best groups of leaders and strivers, they are composed solely on, of the Northern and Western uh, EU members. It's only in this f- other group of one-hit wonders when you can see some mingling between the East and West, between the new and old member states. So on the one hand, you have Estonia and Slovenia, two countries which, despite being new member states, uh, have something exceptional about their contribution to European sovereignty, which is about technology in the Slovenian case and about both technology and uh, migration in the case of Estonia. And on the other hand, within that group of one-hit wonders, you also have uh, some Western countries, or actually one country which is part of the uh, Northwest, which is Austria. Uh, And Austria is the only from among the richest uh, EU members which didn't end up being either a leader or a striver. And this is because uh, despite being uh, strong on Climate on, on or on health. Austria is disappointing in its contribution to European sovereignty on defense and on economy, and uh, and therefore this is this is the only country which uh, from the northwest which which ends up being in in one of the lower categories, being just a one-hit wonder. Uh, but yeah, for, for me th- this is still disappointing to see that that uh, that uh, apart from Slovenia and Estonia, no other country from among the new member states uh, has uh, is demonstrating a significant contribution to European sovereignty in any of the areas. Many of them are good on, on commitments, but most of them are uh, doing very poorly on capabilities.
0: So it arguably the results reinforce the idea that there is an east-west divide, certainly in capabilities, perhaps even in intentions. That's what I hear you saying. Uh, Susie, did you have any reflections on that, on defence, or just being British?
2: And you'd like me to reflect on being... I don't want to reflect on being British this week, thank you. Too painful. Um, Yeah, exactly. Um, No, I mean, maybe... I I'd, I'd be keen to sort of talk um, a, a bit about um the the work that we did um around the the changing context while we were um while we were developing um this, this sovereignty index over the last few months so clearly um as with all other projects when russia invaded ukraine in february and all the attention was on um the leaps that would be we, we being taken forward in terms of European sovereignty as a whole, we were keen to sort of to understand um, what that meant in terms of the assessments um, that we were making and whether that kind of headline story that Europe was building up its capacity to act in ways that it uh, hadn't been able to, um, despite the ambition, um, uh, without the trigger um, of, 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 of the increased Russian threat. Um, whether or not that was actually true um, at, a, at a more mechanical level. So we went through a process of, of sort of checking um, that uh, the ind- indicators that we had for all of the different terrains um, were um, were completely up to date and uh, checking how they changed. And I think broadly overall, it, it's fair to say that for, for tech and for health, we didn't see um, major shifts. What was quite striking sort of looking at the overall results is that, the attention has basically been on economic sovereignty. I think, um, in terms of the, uh, the sanctions packages that um, we've been able to um, to build up, and then um, the security dimension as, as well. Obviously, in terms of um, Europe's ability uh, to, to to cooperate more closely around engagement um, with with supporting Ukraine uh, militarily and so on. And what's quite interesting there is that you can see that the reason we've been able to do that on the economic front. Um, and the reason that that story is true is that the groundwork essentially done. There wasn't a huge change in terms of the indicators that went in, um, but the picture was already there that that Europeans have sort of been doing their homework in terms of um, the the ability to. Um, to act collectively on on the economic front, for defence, that I think you know, as as the fact that it's only satisfactory um, and is still um, only satisfactory despite sort of taking account of the changing picture, that's uh, that that's a slightly different story, and 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 that was quite interesting for us that there's a difference there between the sort of um, uh, the the headline and, and and the detail. But I think um, that...
0: so. Does that reflect the idea that um, that? The EU's defense and the European defense strategy is still the United States
2: um yeah just i think to some extent um that's um uh, you know that that's been the other part of the sovereignty story um that i think has unfolded um in in the current crisis that although we're doing much better on pulling together to take responsibility for our own um security we've also seen that undeniably uh, we're still uh, very much dependent um uh, on the us so the idea of um of of complete uh Uh, strategic sovereignty um, is still um, you know perhaps further off than ever Um, but I think that I I don't want to I don't want (laughs) to let
0: you escape your Britishness altogether Susie I mean has has the has the has Brexit um, affected this has Brexit weakened Europe's capacity to uh, protect its own sovereignty or has it not affected it
2: we we took the decision that what we were looking at um, uh, with with this index um, uh, and um, and and the indicators going into it um, are about um, EU sovereignty. Um, but I think that um, what we've seen in terms of um, the cooperation around the response to Russia uh, with the UK um, has 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 actually been that um, has, has actually shown that that can still work. Um, under pressure when it's necessary, and um, so um, t- to that extent, I don't see um, the the fact that we're only satisfactory on um, on the security domain as being um, a Brexit effect. Um, I-, I see that as a you know a kind of a separate story, if you like, because I I would argue that um, on
1: so it's not your fault, is what you're saying. So
2: it's really not my fault. No, no.
0: Yeah, Pavel, <laughs> is it her fault
1: or not? No, definitely not my fault. Uh, just- <laughs> Field, I, I need to add that specifically in the field of of defense, uh, we were looking at not just EU initiatives to to strengthen European sovereignty in that uh, area, but to uh, at all the other initiatives as well, we, even if they are not specifically in uh, within the EU uh, framework. And also uh, while. Defense is an area where, where Europe is not doing particularly well. And it's also an area with the highest spread be- between the best performing country, which is France, and the worst performing countries, which are really poor in in, in that respect. We still see. Who's the th- worst
0: performing country in that respect? Oh, let
1: me have a look. Um, but. Um, is it Poland? Come on, say it's Poland. No, of course not. It's, of course not. It's Ireland, Hungary, Croatia. Malta, um, but also Sweden. But uh, we can see that uh, defense is from the six areas that we have uh, analyzed, the one where uh, probably the the most is changing right now with uh, several countries uh, planning to to increase their defense spending uh, with Denmark uh, having just voted to... And it's opt out from uh, from the EU defense, uh, uh, and with Sweden and Finland uh, on on the way to join uh, NATO. So, if we were to repeat that exercise in a year from now, I, I believe that the results would change the most in the in the area of defense.
0: So, Vladimir Putin is once again doing his part to increase European sovereignty. He has exactly. probably done more for it in the last several years than any individual alive, with the possible exception of Donald Trump.
2: Just to disagree with you, Pavel, though, I think that migration would be another rival for how much change we might see over the next year. And I also think climate would. And I, I, I mean that in a sort of, um, on migration, I think we've seen big steps forwards in terms of cooperation um, around at, at an EU level, um, implementation of the temporary t- protection directive and so on. And I think, you know, the jury is still out whether that will emerge into something that is longer term um, uh, migration sovereignty and buying into that or whether it's particular to the current situation. But I think we may see progress in that area. And I would also say that you know, climate may move in the other direction, um, given the broader energy context, where I think that, you know, our ability to, to think about energy security in a broader sense, which encompasses climate, will be absolutely critical as to whether or not this is an area that we slide backwards on.
0: Well, that's good, because uh, that sort of uh, segues into my next question. And clearly, we need to have some sort of sovereignty cup where we uh, where we bet on next year's results. Uh, and so you you can both come back a year from now I'll once again steal the podcast from mark and we can uh and we can see which one of you was right but what I wanted to ask in that regard is is what is the future of this thing what are you what are, what are we planning to do with it uh in coming years and what do you think will be uh the advantage of of repetition
1: before the repetition comes uh i I think that, uh, as as I said earlier this is a conversation starter. So this is supposed to steer the discussion about the where the weakest links are in in the Europe's edifice of of, of sovereignty. Name and shame.
0: Name and no, shame. but it's yeah.
1: it's not. I think that for countries that are underperforming, uh, it's it's particularly interesting to to hear why our index shows that they are underperforming. Where could oh, they... Name, be? name and motivate. Is what you prefer. <laughs> yeah, perhaps. And uh, and also for countries that see themselves as leaders of, of European sovereignty, like France or, or Germany, it, it, it can still, and which turn out to be leaders according to our ranking, they are still doing poorly in some areas. And therefore, there needs to be a discussion uh, on why and how could that improved. And also uh, with Brussels, uh, within the Brussels bubble, I think that the discussion can be useful on uh, how those differences in the performance of, of, of EU27 affect uh, Europe's uh, capacity to be sovereign in those different fields. And I really believe that after this exercise, uh, we are able to show that every field is kind of special uh, and uh, and therefore, that European sovereignty means something different and requires something else, uh, whether it's uh, health, climate or defence.
2: And we're not going to go on the record and say we're going to do it again next year, but we are going to do it again. We're all very tired at the moment. It will be easier to do it in future years, but we're not necessarily going to commit <laughs> to doing it in a year's time.
0: <laughs> oh, I see. That's a staff motivation <laughs> technique more than a plan. Yeah. I get it. Uh, okay. Uh, that all seems fair. Uh, it's definitely, um, I think it's definitely useful to to start this conversation. Sometimes I feel as if the EU is just one or two conversations away from sovereignty. So uh, this 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 will advance us, I'm sure. Uh, great great strides. Um, I, I think um, the it would be good actually uh, if you could, since I know that this was a real a real labor and a a work of many. If you could just run us through who else worked on this project, just so we can give everybody a little bit of credit for what I think is an enormous achievement.
2: Shall I start? Uh, so uh, Pavel uh, and Jana Poulirin, um spearheaded it interle- intellectually as a project. The authors of the different terrains, apart from myself, um, and Jana and Pavel, uh, include Raphael Loss, um, Anthony Dworkin, um, on the tech side, Rika Franca, who is currently on maternity leave but did a lot of the work before giving birth, um, and uh, Julian Ringhoff. So that's um, the, the sort of the, the, the core writing team. Gossia Piakowska um, has been um, uh, working right from the beginning of the process um, uh, on um, on the data and research and has been responsible for uh, a lot of um, the analysis um, that that has gone into gone into the findings uh, Charlene runger has has also been supporting um, from Berlin the research side as well on the graphical side chris eichberger um, has been uh, doing an amazing job um, turning um, the the ideas into something understandable um, and and these huge data sets into something beautiful and Juan rutina has put that onto the web. Marlena Vidal, who's um, on the, on this uh, call with us today, um, has also been heavily engaged um, in how we're kind of communicating the findings. Um, I, I should have probably started here, but Jenny um, Söderström has been coordinating the whole project and basically managing the whole thing and is the reason that we've hit the, the launch date, um, which none of us really expected to do. Um, have I missed anyone, Pavel?
1: Susie, you just uh, forgot about one person, which is Chris Raggett, our great editor. And I think that uh, Jeremy and Mark also need to be acknowledged as uh, the ones who were um, uh, pre-pushers of the whole project.
2: The godfathers of sovereignty.
0: Yeah, or the pushers of sovereignty. I think that's a better one. Okay, so we have just one thing left to do in this podcast and um, and this is our bookshelf section. So what is on your bookshelf, uh,
1: Pavel? Yeah, I will not be pretending that I have terribly a lot of time to read right now, but there is one book that uh, I'm slowly reading, which is a French translation of the Bulgarian novel by Georgi Gospodinov. The English title is Time Shelter. And uh, and The Guardian says that this is a book about the weaponization of nostalgia. So a very topical book in our discussion about weaponization of interdependencies.
0: Oh, Yeah. Uh, I think my mother was the inventor of the weaponization of nostalgia Uh, (laughs) Susie what's on your bookshelf?
2: Um, I'm reading, um, a book about, uh, cyber weapons and, um, the, the cyber arms we- race. It's actually on my desk. It's called, this is how they tell me the world ends by Nicole Peleroff. And, um, I'm reading it because, uh, uh, because I was recommended it as a really good romp. Um, a really good read. And it is, it's, it's, it's actually really exciting. Uh, it's a real page turner, um, until you remember that it's not fiction and, um, then you get quite scared. Uh, so, um, yeah, no, it's, it's a good one.
0: That doesn't sound uplifting. Uh, <laughs> I'm reading a similarly unuplifting book by um, uh, by Matthew Continenti, which is called uh, "The Right: The Hundred-Year War for American Conservatism," which is about a sort of is a sort of history over the last hundred years of the Republican Party and seeks to understand how uh, how the Republican Party ended up with Donald Trump. Uh, which is um, almost as apocalyptic as what you just said, Susie. Um, so, uh, thank you uh, for for uh, for everything. We we will put a link to all the publications we mentioned on our website at ecfr.eu. I want to say a special thank you to all of the contributors that we mentioned to the European Sovereignty Index, and I also want to thank um, the Mercator Foundation who uh, helped support the work uh, and without whom we could not have done it. Um, if you enjoyed listening to this podcast, please do let other people know by writing about it on your social media page or ours or just um, writing us a nice email would be good. And above all, please give us a good rating and review on whichever platform you use to download this podcast. But for now, from Susie Dennison, Pavel Zerka, and myself, Jeremy Shapiro, it's goodbye. The researcher of this podcast is Lucy Hopenthal, and the editor of this week's episode is Marlena Rida.